Odidi Mfenyana. And uh, the reason why we have to do that is because um, I get mistaken for a Nigerian or somebody from East Africa because it's an unusual name, even to people from South Africa who speak Isikosa. So um, my clan name is Bele. I'm a Bele, which is uh, the totem animal of the river hippopotamus. Um, it also gives us a bit of our personality, which is small, but fast, but also quite chilled and happy to be smiling. <laughs> I'm a Bele. Odidi, so the male bellies of high esteem, of good quality, of great integrity, of greatness, is an adjective. And then Venyana is the surname, which comes from a small reed that grows on the rivers of the Eastern Cape, Imve, because a baby monkey is Mvenana, not Imvenyana. <laughs> I would say I'm a passionate, creative artist um, and activist, um, social activist, I think. For me, because of the way I grew up with my dad in a politically involved church, the Anglican Church of Southern Africa, so it was, it's, it's almost like I've literally taken a feather from my dad's hat and uh, changed it a little bit for the 21st century and the end of the 20th century. And I do believe that the work that I do has a sacredness to it. It hits people emotionally, as well as it teaches, and it enlightens, and it challenges. So I do believe I'm a kind of, how you'd say, Sangoma performer. <laughs> the song Proud Mary has almost become a bit of a signature. <laughs> kind of like a special request that I have to do. But the song, the lyrics themselves are very interesting. Left a good job in the city, working for the man every night and day. It's almost like what has been kind of happening in my life in that people have always been saying to me, you know, yes, yeah, you're a performer. Yes, you're, yeah, you're good at it. Yes, 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 you've done this and that. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, like, um, but you need to get a proper job. <laughs> it's a constant, and every time I've tried to go, towards the conventional, something pulls me back on the road less traveled. I have to say, being born at the particular time that I have, I've kind of had to roll with the punches of the country as it's been happening, from like the state of emergency to like 1990 to like, oh, 1994 to like, yeah. So everything sort of seems to be happening just at, how do I put it, as I go through another age. So as I get to my teenage years, you know, 1990 arrives as I get out of my teenage years, Mandela becomes president. And as I get into my zeitgeist of my 20s, you know, it's Tabo Mbeki. And then right in the smack bang of my 30s, it's, you know, good old Zuma. So everything seems to be happening in a way that's quite interesting. And then like, you know, I'm about to turn 40 and we have a new president. <laughs> and it's been really um, how do I put it? I mean, people say, oh, trailblazing, but yeah, it's been a great adventure, being almost pioneering in a way, but not really in a pioneering kind of way. Or, but I sometimes do feel like almost like a guinea pig, more than a pioneer, <laughs> as a kind of the test of, okay, is this going to work? All oh, right, it actually is. Okay. Being the son of a 
of an Anglican priest in the African community of South Africa is almost like being a mini royal family of that community. So you're held in high esteem and um, everyone seems to be looking at you. You grow up with eyes and a certain reverence and uh, respect given. And then there is the that part where at the age of like four, I think it was four, four or five, yeah, about four years old, three to four years old, I just didn't go to bed that night. I was <laughs> taken outside straight from the bath to go and say hello to the cameras um, because we had the BBC and all kinds of American overseas television because our house and our yard in Yangai East at Holy Cross Church um, had turned into a refugee camp for all the people from the, uh, the Crossroads squatter camp, which had been bulldozed by the police. So it was like, whoa. And from then on, it became very clear you know, that our church became sort of a center of things and would sometimes land up on the front page because the assistant priest decided that he was going to lie in front of a bulldozer. <laughs> Um, we'd have regular visits from Archbishop Tutu, um, which were fantastic. And it was just to be in that zeitgeist and then to be in the center of a township that is, I mean, it was crazy. My dad wears a dress for his work. Yes, it's a cassock, <laughs> but it's not pants. <laughs> my favorite game was to do my dad's whole entire service. Um, I have to say, I think I've inherited his musicality and his singing voice. I, I am told. Um, and um, so definitely great influence. Um, and then the political side, definitely as well. I think the the humanist in him, the human rights, the, the, the ideas that he has for gender, um, not necessarily equality, but that both genders are respected um, and and that everybody has a capacity to do the best they can, no matter what gender they are. And and then, of course, um, you know, through that whole progress of, you know, following Archbishop Tutu um, and that lead that he had regarding be being the only primate of any church in the whole entire world that's actually come out, um, not pro-gay rights, but more in the defense of what we have here in South Africa, which is not to discriminate according to, to sexual orientation. I think for my matric, I was doing a, my final history project, which went towards my final mark. We had to do a project on current affairs, and I picked the gay, anti-gay um, campaigns done by Sam Njoma and U Robert Mugabe, because that year, Archbishop Desmond Tutu in 1996 was retiring, and of course he had to visit Holy Cross Church before he finished. So I knew I'd have to get a direct quote. And the first quote was, um, the Bible is open to interpretation because it was written by a man. And the second one was, before it actually became a front page headline was, I will not worship a homophobic God. And with my dad, it's just like he loves his kids and that's the plain thing. And it's very important that we have that element. And I don't think I would have actually would have been who I am now if I wasn't for that time. It was just 
opportune. <laughs> opportune. It was like 1990, yes, they're no more. Um, Anti-gay laws were, you know, disappeared. And then 1994, along with RuPaul becoming like a number one hitter on the world for supermodel of the world, they <laughs> and become the face of Mac was also the fact that, you know, Nelson Mandela walked free and we, and we started building towards that 1996, which was Mama Trick, the constitution, which actually then has that sort of Bill of Rights clause kind of thing, which says you shall not discriminate according to race, creed, gender, or sexual orientation, which was a precedent in the country, yeah. We had contingency plans <laughs> made for like, you know, for what would happen after the coming out. Even if something is that obvious, <laughs> as a very campy five-year-old who takes pictures like Iman. Um, <laughs> it would be something that I guess your parents would be almost going, okay, this is what we're going to expect. But I think it was almost like a dread for them. And that's, you can feel that effect um, as a kid. When that day arrived, it was a bit of an anti-climax because my dad said, I thought as much, let's pray. And my mom burst into tears, which was a bit of a surprise. And when I asked my mom, because I was quite perplexed, I was like, why is my mother crying? Like, you should know this by now. But um, it was a case of, why do you want to be black gay as well? <laughs> In this world of so many hardships. My dad managed to um, convince the previous Archbishop of, um, of Cape Town to get my sister, my brother, into first in Prince and then into bishops. I think they were the first kids of colour at all to get into the school. Um, my brother had to wait, I think, about two years to get into bishops and got in about 1981. And my sister, yeah, and, and him were in 1980, yeah, at um, Sinsa Prince. So yes, campy five-year-old kid now goes to bishops. How does that work? I actually wrote something about that last year. I was just like, whoa, why didn't anybody try to give me a heads up? And I think possibly they did, but, and I didn't see it. To tell you the truth, not at all. I mean, last year, funny enough, Somebody put on a, a skit. I think it was like a scene from a Bollywood movie, kind of comedy of what happens or what can go wrong in a scrum, and <laughs> and it's, it got all of us sort of reminiscing about the times we were in practice at prep school. And I was put in the scrum because I could not catch the ball. I could run, but I could not catch the ball. I was the smallest. I remember the Turvey brothers at Weinberg couldn't believe that somebody actually screamed when a scrum collapsed. And I did because I thought I was gonna, my neck was going to break because <laughs> everybody was on top of me. <laughs> um, uh, I remember our good old Mr. Griffiths, our cauliflower-eared coach, just didn't know what to do when I would freak out at earthworms. Now we are because we had upturned it through our prop machine. <laughs> and, and the next thing you know, Daniel Vickerman is running after me with earthworms on his head going, jeepers. <laughs> so on that night when the Red Cross was on our yard and Medicine from Frontier, we also got a new guest to the church. 
in the form of Sister Mary Frances, who was a nun, a white lady, who was living with um, with the people of Crossroads, Unongendi, um, as she was called, in Kosa. And she refused to sleep in the spare room. She would only sleep at the altar on a mattress. And she almost became like my governess. And Sister Mary Frances kind of went with my, I don't know, I guess my imagination. I mean, I had asthma as well. So I think one of one of her favorite things was that we would meet each other for ice cream. Um, just before I went to bed, she would sing through this um, Christopher Robin um, little, I don't know, I mean, those multicolored books used to get. And the one had all the poems and the rhymes and da 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 and so that one she'd be like, Little Diddy sleeps at the foot of his bed. Hush, hush, whisper who dares. Little old Diddy is saying his prayers. God bless mommy, I know that's right. And then at the end, you should go through the whole thing and then it'd be like, right, so I'll meet you for ice cream. I guess she was the one person who really sat with me with my, with that sort of, the performing arts with me. I think in Sabi, I got, this is the house that Jack built and I had, and I had to say the whole entire book. Why everybody else just got it acted out. <laughs> and so she was very pivotal in terms of getting me um, to, to sort of speak well and diction and got the creative juices going. Odidiva was created by, was invented by Brett Bailey, um, who I coincidentally met at karaoke in 2001 and sang for my shot of schnapps, I think it was. Yeah, Freedom by George Michael and kind of brought the house down. I mean, George Michael's in my key. So, <laughs> um, uh, and he sort of approached and said, um, hi, you sang very well. And he kept on insisting he wanted to talk. So I was like, okay. And he said, I'm a theater director. Would you mind being in a play? I said, what is the play about? And he goes, Idi Amin. And I go, yo, my mother just told me about that. By the time I was born, some guy who fed his whole entire country to crocodiles. Now, why do I want to do a play about that? About the, about the shame of Africa, I think was the thing I said to him. And I think two days later, he called from the Baxter Theatre, rattling off my CV. And I was like, oh, this man is for real. I didn't know anything of, of him. And the first reading, we arrive, sit down, and all the scripts come out, and everybody gets to read their parts. And then we got to the sort of the last sort of chapter before the interval and he just said Odidiva to be sung like Brenda Fassi meets Grace Jones and Shirley Bassey and the song was called Fire in Uganda so he just wrote the poem the lyrics and he was like well there you go you can go and work with Bood Carver and Douglas Armstrong and I'm like who from Honeymoon Suites and yeah and that's how Odie Diva was born to do the show stop in a pair of African print hot pants in uh, and gold shoes Odie Diva becoming the voice of activism sort of came by experience as the character sort of developed and became um, more refined I guess because now in, in hindsight that my mind was always on the community in general but as things progressed, I guess I had to fill in something in between. And kind of what started to happen was that whatever was on my mind suddenly came out in the, in the show. 
it started very small. And then, and then I was at Rosie's on a Monday night for I think like a year and a half or two. And then um, Desmond Tutu, um, HIV Foundation, Earl Burrell is like, we're doing this prep sort of trial thing for this drug and, oh my God, you'll be perfect. You'll be perfect. Perfect because they needed to get people to sort of do the drug trial because now they were actually testing it out for specifically for a South African market and gay market, you know, that. and so I became sort of the spokesperson for the, the PrEP trials um, and for PrEP. Um, so I ended up doing a lot of um, all the different pageants around the peninsula. It started getting a lot of international attention. ODD says a lot of things that ODD cannot say or that ODD will not be able to deliver well. <laughs> um, it's like, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Yes, my name is Odidiva. O-D-I-D-I-V-A. Odidiva. Don't worry, there's no click in it. Uh, by the way, I'm the only black person in the room who's not in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, would be the kind of comment that would come out. And then we like, how do you know somebody went to patients? Because they tell you. <laughs> so a lot of those things would come up in the conversation because in my head I'm just going through a passive aggressive madness <laughs> of satire um, and in drag you're making a political statement I think that's something that actually RuPaul said you're already creating a, a taboo and for that not it was too juicy a thing for me not to actually play with um, and to actually take advantage of Whew, I mean, we're in a city that's discussing, you know, where, where binary is so important as to how do I refer to myself. And I'm just like, well, you know, if people have met me as Odidiva, they can just carry on. Calling me Odidiva and go she, whatever, no problem. Um, but usually just goes with my shoes. If I'm wearing heels, it's she. And if it's, even if I'm not, it's he. I mean, some of my oldest friends call me Diva. You know, it's just a nickname. It it's not, doesn't matter too much to me because I am playing with it. What I love about living in South Africa is that so much of the world is here already and you sort of kind it's kind of reflected back to you on a constant basis. I always want to come back home because I see so much of the country reflected in different places and um, we should be more proud, I think, and be more happy about it, about, our, about the country. I mean, there's a madness going on in other places. Oh, seven trees bearing strange fruit. Blood on the leaves, boom, blood on the leaves, blood on the trees, blood on the leaves, blood on the trees, seven trees, bearing strange fruit, blood on the leaves, and blood at the roots, black bodies hanging in the southern breeze, for the sun to rise. And the leaves to drop seven trees hanging from the poplar trees, seven trees bearing strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the roots.
That strange fruit song. Nina Simone was a cat that made out of plasticine that sang a song called My Baby Don't Care. I didn't know who Nina Simone was. This is what's one of the things that's so incredible about this whole transformation into New South Africa. Nina Simone was banned, along with James Baldwin and Miriam Makeba, so we had no clue. So the discovery of that was that that story of how Miriam Makeba and Nina Simone were kind of like sisters from the same kind of struggle across the Atlantic. And it's, it's the story of, of crossroads, really, um, of the area I lived in. Um, you know, the number one murder, ca the murder capital of the country since I don't know when. I mean, I remember spawning the police or electricity to come and, sort it, to come and switch on the lights or the water back on, and they would say, that's a slagban. <laughs> so, and that was Nyanga during the 80s. So it's that story of, of victims of, of uh, oppression, poverty, violence. And that particular song was used by Jack Lewis to um, highlight hate crimes and xenophobia right at the time that it was actually taking place, which was 2008, 2009. And that was the beginning of the sort of corrective rape. Um, and that song seemed totally apt. 